Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Yeah, nice. Some shouts, excitement there. Uh, before I get started this morning, I want to share just one quick announcement, and that is um, we're all so thankful for the worship here, how it, each week it's different, it changes. One of, the, one of the ways that we express worship is through um, hymn sings. Have you ever heard of a hymn sing? Okay, so you might not know about it, but on May 4th, next Friday at 7.30, um, a group of people gather here in the sanctuary around the grand piano and just sing hymns for an hour. And so if that's something that you're interested in, Monday or Friday, May 4 at 7.30 here. Okay, so good morning. My name's Will. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Crossroads, and I get the privilege of opening up the Bible today and, and just seeing how the life of Paul continues to unfold before us. And if you're new here, if it's your first time, I want to say uh, welcome. I remember my first time at Crossroads and how huge it felt and scary it felt. And so if you're looking for a friend, you can come talk to me afterward. I'd love to show you around, give you a tour or whatever. Um, also, I want to kind of bring you up to speed because you're stepping into the middle of a sermon series. We've been spending the winter of 2018 looking at the life of this guy named Paul. And the reason that we'd spend so much time in this man's teaching and the narrative of his life is because Paul is an extremely influential person to the Christian story. Chances are, even if you never have opened your Bible before, even if you're not super familiar with your Bible, you are probably still familiar with some of the catchphrases that Paul says. Paul wrote things like, if God is for us, who can be against us? He wrote the classic wedding message of love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. He wrote the thing that athletes get tattooed on their back that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, who is used by God to pen words and letters who have given hope and faith and courage to thousands of men and women for thousands of years. He's an author who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. He wrote 32,408 words, literally 5% of the entire Bible. And this is a man who's not only writing letters, but as we've seen in our study, he's traveling all over the place. He's a missionary. He's a, he's a person who's sent out by the church to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the entire known world, to whoever has ears to hear. In his travels, he's went over 10,000 miles with the good news, planning churches, 14 churches that we know about from the Bible, and probably countless other churches. Together with Paul's writings and his travels, he becomes someone that we can all look to with extreme gratitude. We know that God could have found another way to spread his kingdom throughout the world. He didn't have to use Paul. But imagine how different the world would be right now, how different our faith would be if Paul hadn't been so tenacious in sharing and spreading the gospel. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that in many ways, you and I, we know Jesus better today. We know his character, his heart better because of the life of Paul. And at the same time, while I'm thankful, I'm also challenged by it. And I think that's like the hallmark of a person who's to be respected. You're thankful for their hard work, their effort, their life. But you're challenged by it too. It, counts, it makes you think like, what am I, what am I doing? 
when I look at the life of Paul, when I look at the wake that he left behind him, it's just so clear to see the impact. And I find myself thinking about the way that I'm living, the words that I'm saying, my actions. I find myself comparing it to Paul's. And I'm wondering, what impact am I leaving in the world around me? What influence am I having? What influence do my kids have as they step out of the van every morning and go into their school? When I look at them in the eyes and say, hey, be Jesus, be light, be love to your friends, and then send them into that school. Are they leaving an impact there? Or me and my family in our, in our neighborhood, are we loving our neighbors in a way that causes them to hunger and thirst for Jesus. What about Crossroads? What about the thousand people that are in this room right now? Is Crossroads having an impact on the city? Is the church global of Grand Rapids, the big church in Grand Rapids, are we able to influence the decisions that are being made in our government here? Are we able to influence the decisions that are made in this city? Are we the ones who are influencing the world around us? Are we being influenced by the world? Is the light of the goodness and the grace and the gospel of Jesus entering into our life in a way that, that causes impact? This is something that we need to be asking. And as I was thinking about that this week, I noticed something that I never really noticed before, jumping off the text. I mean, it makes sense. You're going to say, yeah, of course that that's true. But it never stuck out to me like it did this week when I was studying Paul. Because I think about all the places that Paul went, all the peoples he interacted with, the cultures that he saw, the religion, the ideologies, the highest of holinesses, the lowest of debaucheries, the governments, the class structures. Paul has seen it all. Paul has experienced it all. And somehow, Paul is able to enter into each one of those situations and be unaffected by them. And not only be unaffected by them, but he, his life, his message, his actions actually had effect on the places that he's stepping into. He's caused reform to happen in cities. He causes justice to come into social and class structures. He causes the humble to, to lift their heads a little higher and the proud to bend their knees. Paul doesn't allow the authority or the position of any other person in his life to distract him from what's most important. And that leaves me with this aching question of how. How was he able to do that? How is he able to remain so true to who he is? How does he move through the world without the world molding and shaping him? I don't know if you ever asked that question. I don't know if you ever wrestled with those thoughts. But Paul needs to be an example to us how to walk into the dark places of our lives. And instead of taking on that darkness, we bring the light of Jesus into him. I'm thankful that we have the word of God. I'm thankful that we have the spirit of God. I'm thankful for a church like Crossroads where we strive to know both of those things. I'm thankful that God reveals himself to us and gives us answers to tough questions when we ask. That when we say, God, I need some wisdom, he says, okay, I'll give you wisdom. And I spent a lot of time this week asking because I think it's one of the most important things that we as Christians need to have figured out. 
especially as the world around us changes so much? How do we remain true to Jesus as our first love when everything around us seems to be pulling in opposite direction? And I know there's a thousand little intricacies to that question that could complicate it, but as I'm asking the Lord over and over, how, how does Paul do this? I felt like he was answering me with something really simple. He was saying that Paul knows who he is in Christ. Paul knows his status before the Father. And because of Paul knowing who he is, not looking for the world to tell him who he is, not looking for outside influence to give him value or substance, Paul knows who he is, and because of that, he's able to step into each one of these situations and love people accordingly. Love them in a way that God wants him to love them. We're going to see it in our text today. Paul's going to talk to some really important people, and rather than be swayed by them and their position, Paul loves them, speaks to them. But before we open our Bibles, I want to take a second and look at kind of where we've been because uh, where we're at today and where Rod left off last week, there's kind of a little bit of a gap, and so we're going to go through that here. As the life of Paul goes, uh, there's really three distinct stages in his life, three chapters of his life. The first chapter is Paul the Pharisee. This is uh, Paul's life before Jesus, when he's born, his early adulthood, he's growing up, he's devote to the law, he's a persecutor of the Christian faith. The second chapter is Paul the missionary. From the time that Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and says, it's, it's me, the Lord Jesus. And he calls him into ministry. From that moment until the time that he leaves those Ephesian elders on the, on the shores of Turkey and sails back for Jerusalem, that's Paul the missionary. And the third chapter is Paul the prisoner. Where we find ourselves today is this turning point from Paul the missionary, closing that chapter and opening the chapter of Paul the prisoner. Paul's returned from his third missionary journey. He's bringing money that he collected. He's bringing it to Jerusalem. He's going to give it to the poor. He's going to make offerings in the temple. But while he's there, Paul's arrested. He's, he's grabbed by some Jews that says they're from the province of Asia. These Jews, they shut the temple gates, they kick everyone else out, and they're going to kill Paul. They're going to kill him right there in the temple. And while this is happening, the Roman commander hears about it, hears about this uproar that's happening at the temple, and he rushes in and just, he, he kind of takes Paul away from that situation. He steps in, hold off, grabs Paul. And as he's dragging Paul out of there, Paul goes in front of his, his Jewish brothers, and he says, hey, can I have a moment to speak to them real quick? And the commander says, yeah. And Paul, in Hebrew, says to him, he says, Brothers, you know who I am. You know that I've been devout. You know that God has called me into his service. Jesus Christ is pleased to reveal himself to me. And now because of the way that you're treating me, because you're shutting your ears to me, he's going to send me far away to the Gentiles. The Jews do not like it when Paul says this that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. They do not like it, and the riot starts up all over again. The commander then of the Roman guard, was they, he took Paul and was going to have Paul flogged and interrogated. And as literally the text says that the soldiers raised their hand to flog Paul, and Paul casually mentions right before that first lash came down, wait, wait, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve a trial, don't I, before I get punished. 
I deserve a trial. It's almost as if, you know, the classic, like, card game scene in a movie where the guy throws down his cards and reaches out to pull all the chips back towards him. And there's a guy with a little smile on his face holding his cards close to his chest and says, uh-uh, full house, boom, game over, right? That's Paul here. He's, like, waiting to this, like, climactic moment. He says, I'm a Roman, And so instead of a flogging, Paul is put in prison. And while Paul's in prison, there's this small group of zealot Jews who who make a pact with each other to say, okay, we're not going to eat anything, we're not going to drink anything until this guy, Paul, is dead. So we're going to plan something. So in the morning, the commander brings him out and we're going to ambush them. And we're going to kill Paul right then. Well, like it seems to always happen, Paul has a source on the outside. And Paul hears about this plan. Actually, it's Paul's nephew. Did anyone know that Paul had a sister? I don't think it's mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but right here, Paul has a sister, apparently. Sister's son hears about this plan, tells Paul. Paul sends him to the commander. The commander comes up with this plan to not let them kill Paul. And he sends Paul that night after 9 p.m. with 200 armed men on horseback, 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the sea. And I'm not sure why it stands out to me so much, but you just see Paul getting out of these like situations just by the skin of his teeth almost every time. Remember, he's lowered from a basket through a window at night, and now here he is on horseback. And I can just picture him laughing as he's on a Roman horse, surrounded by 200 Roman guards. He's probably just thinking, are the Romans the good guys here? What is going on? And it's the last time he rides out of Jerusalem. He never goes back there again. This is where our reading picks up this morning. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can grab one. There's some Bibles down the aisles here on these little tables. Um, We're going to start with Acts 23 verse 31 and we're going to read through all the way through Acts 24. So if you got a Bible and you're ready, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Okay, 23 verse 31. It says, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and they brought, with, they brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry, go on with him, while they returned to their barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Which is kind of cush. Herod's palace is literally right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's beautiful. There's marble everywhere. Paul's, I don't know if he's in a bad spot here. It seems like a good spot. Anyway, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He said, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. 
He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things are true. When the the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge in this nation, so I will gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers didn't find, any, didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they're making now against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets— And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one little thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, Adjourn these proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of him. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid, and he said, Okay, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent to him frequently and and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. This is God's word for today. You can have a seat. And as you're doing that, I just want to pray one more time. So pray with me, would you? God, we we look to your word, and we ask that you would give us wisdom today to understand you more as we look at the life of Paul, that we would know you better, Jesus. I have Paul's words ringing in my ears. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. So today, God, let us walk in the footsteps of Paul so that we might know you better, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. Okay, so coming out of the text, I want to start with a picture. Uh, I want you to see this picture real quick here. See that picture? Some nice backsplash ideas there. If you're looking for a new uh, kitchen there. Does anyone know who this is? This is Muhammad the sixth, king of anyone? Morocco, yeah. This is Muhammad, this king of Morocco. This is a picture that my friend Hanny Emanuel showed to me. Uh, we were in Switzerland. Um, this past March, and he showed me this picture and how this picture moved in his heart, and I felt the same way. The king there is in the middle. Um, On this side of the king, that's his brother. And then look at this little dude over here. He does not want to be there, does he? (laughs) That little suit and that little throne is so funny to me. 
The king is in the middle, his brother's on his left hand, and his, his son, Mule, he's sitting right at the king's right hand. The right hand of the father, this small boy, he doesn't need to be at this hearing. He doesn't need to be there. He probably doesn't want to be there. But the king, the father, is saying, no, you will be here because you need to know something. You're my son. You're the son of the king. You will be at my right hand. You will be ruler of all things. You will be heir of all things. Just like Mufasa tells Simba in The Lion King, he says, everything, everything the sun touches will one day be yours. And I hope that that sounds at least a little bit familiar. You know, your mind should be running to Jesus, our, our king, the son sitting at the right hand of the father. The ruler of all things, sovereign over all creation. Paul says in Colossians that he's the beginning and the end of all things, that everything finds its life and its meaning and its purpose in Jesus. And a lot of times we want to stop there. We're okay with that. We're okay with Jesus being the Son of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. But let me tell you what Paul also wrote in a letter to his friends in Rome. He says, those of you who are led by the Spirit of God, you are children of God. The Spirit that you received, it doesn't cause you to be a slave anymore so that you live in fear, but rather the Spirit that you've received has brought about your adoption into sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father, this most intimate way of calling out to your dad, Abba, the Spirit himself, who is there before the creation of the world, he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God, we're co-heirs with Christ. I don't think any of us in this room could even fathom how amazing it is that Paul says that we are co-heirs with Christ. It's like, King Muhammad there like has to search the world for another tiny little throne. And he, he drags it among the crowd and he sets it right up to, next to Mule, butts up the arms right next to each other. And he looks you in the eyes and he says, you, you'll sit here with me. You'll be in, within reach of my right hand. Everything I have is yours. Everything the light touches is yours. The reason I show you this picture is because Paul knew this. Paul knew who he was. He wrote it. He wrote it in almost every letter that he wrote to his friends in different churches and different provinces. He said, you guys, we've been brought into a new relationship with the Father. We're sons and daughters. We're co-heirs with Christ. He lived this. He walked in this confidence everywhere he went, whether he's making tents in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila or he's standing before earthly rulers here in Caesarea. He knew that God the Father had adopted him through the blood of Jesus Christ and calls him son, calls him heir, purchased him out of this slave relationship and elevated him to the position of a son. Just listen to the way that Paul puts it in so many other places in the letters. Paul says, God sent a son. He was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit to be inside of you. His spirit who calls out Abba. So you're no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. That's from Galatians 4. In Romans 8, he says that we can never be separated from this love of the Father. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we've become a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. In Galatians 3, he says, we have become children of God. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been seated in the heavenly places where Jesus is seated. And we've been given this incomparable inheritance, the riches of God's grace. Paul was able to write these things to his friends because Paul knew them about himself. And this isn't some narcissistic, self-exalting, blind-to-his-own-faults belief because Paul is very familiar with himself. He's very familiar with his shortcomings. He's very familiar with what his life looked like and the regrets that he had before Jesus rescued him. He says to, to Timothy, who's his mentee, he says, I thank Christ Jesus who's given me strength, who considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once just the worst. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the faith. I was a violent man. But God showed me mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, along with faith and love that are in Jesus. See, Paul thought about himself rightly. He knows who he was before the grace of God entered into his life. And he knows who he is now that God has reached down into the ash heap and lifted him out. And the confidence of his father on the throne allows him to move into the world and remain true to that love. It allows him to enter into hard places and bring freedom. It allows him to enter into dark places and bring light. There's two examples of this, of Paul's confidence in our text today. The first example that I want you to see is the way that Paul deals with the charges that are brought up against him by the Jews and the words and his tone of voice that he uses when addressing Felix. Both Tertullus and Paul, they're speaking formally to the governor of Judea named Marcus Antonius Felix. Think of a courtroom setting. Felix was the governor of the land from uh, the year 52 to the year 58. And by all accounts, everyone has the same thing to say about Felix. He is a bad man. He's a bad dude. He grew up, uh, he was born into slavery. And through a, like crazy circumstances, he was brought out of slavery and put in this high position as governor. During his governorship, um, He's just a tyrant. It says that insurrections were happening, anarchy was happening in his, in his province, and so his, his method of dealing with it was just crucifixion. Crucify. The Roman historians, they say that he was a master of cruelty. He was a master of lust who exercised the powers of a king, listen to this, exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. That's scary to me. Yikes. It doesn't sound like something, someone that you really want to mince words with or mess with, which is exactly why Tertullus addresses him in the way that he does. He says, we have absolutely just loved these long periods of peace under your reign. He says, the reforms that you're making, just spot on. We love it. And in fact, we come here today with great gratitude. He's blown smoke. This is literally the exact opposite of what is true about how people feel about Felix and his rule. He's making it all up. 
And he isn't the only one. Even the commander of the Roman guard, he's, remember he sends a letter with Paul to be met by with Felix. And in his letter that he sent with Paul, he said, he said I'm the hero of the whole thing. I noticed that they were treating Paul wrong, and so I stepped in and I rescued him. They were going to kill him, but I, I saved him. Kind of nice how he left out the part about the flogging and the interrogation, right? These two, Lysias and Tertullus, not only are they great baby names if you're looking for something. <laughs> these two men, they're addressing this awful man with flattery because they want to improve their own status. Anyone else ever been there? Do you guys know Steve Van Poolen? He's my boss, right? So, you know, he, it's like me saying, you know, Steve, your hair is coming in nice and thick right now. <laughs> By the way, any way I can get that raise we've been talking about, you know? It's just like buttering him up, elevating him to get something that you want. The commander, who knows, he might get a big promotion because of the way that he handled the situation. And Tertullus, maybe he can win this court battle and be elevated as the best lawyer in Jerusalem or something. But look at what Paul has to say when he addresses Felix. It reminds me of what uh, my dad used to say. He used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all, right? Paul just kind of says, okay, I acknowledge that there's another human in this room right now, and you've been the judge over this area for a while, so I'll talk to you. He doesn't use flattery. He could. He doesn't try to prop himself up in front of this man who has authority to deal with him in any way he chooses. And this really becomes a theme for Paul on trial. We see it with Felix. We'll see it with Agrippa. We'll see it in Rome. Paul remains true to who he is no matter who he's before or what he's being accused of. Tertullus brings three charges against Paul on behalf of the Jews. The first charge is that Paul is starting riots. The second charge is that he's a ringleader of this uprising. And the third charge is that Paul has desecrated their temple. We see Paul's defense against his first charge in verses 12 and 13. He says, my accusers didn't find me actually doing anything in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And actually, they can't even prove to you anything that they've mentioned to you so far. In verses 14 and 16, Paul admits to belonging to what the Jews are referring to as a sect, but he disarms their argument by saying that the hope that they have in God is the same hope, that Messiah will come and call all the living and the dead to resurrection. He says, however, I admit that I worship God of our ancestors as a follower. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law, just like they do. I believe everything that's written by the prophets, just like they do. And the hope that I have in God is the same hope as these men have. In regards to the third charge, the charge of desecrating the temple, Paul says that he was actually ceremonially clean in the temple. He was actually there making sacrifice, bringing his gift to the temple treasury when they found him. He says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people's gifts, gifts for the poor, present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. Again, I love his confidence. He literally just tells it how it is. It reminds me of, I, was dry, I used to work at uh, Starbucks over on the Beltline and Naps Corner area. I was a shift supervisor, which means you get there before everyone else and you count all the money. And at the end of your shift, you count all the money again and you leave. And as I was driving home, I got a call from my manager who said that my 
uh, that I was missing $100. And my mind immediately started to go like, I didn't, I, I, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. You know, that's what was going on in my mind. Same way my girls, they fight, you know, every single day. They're six and seven, and literally everything is a fight for them. And there's always accusation. You, Lily, you did this. No, uh Like, that's what they say, right? That's what kids say, nuh-uh. I don't know who teaches the nuh-uh. Rayma, that's mine. You can't take that from me. That's mine. Nuh-uh. That's how I felt when I got a call from the manager saying, you took this $100. I just wanted to, nuh I've been said, I felt... I prayed while this guy's waiting for me on the phone, and I felt like I just need to say, hey, can you, can you count again and call me back? Counted again. Everything was fine. I didn't take $100. I could have buttered up my manager. I could have said, hey, you know me. I'm a good guy, right? Like, you know me. I wouldn't do that. And you're just the best manager. Just, you know. Paul could have buttered Felix up too. He could have said it's all just a misunderstanding. He could have shifted blame off of him and shifted it onto literally anyone else. But he doesn't. Paul has confidence in who he is. Confidence in what he's done. Confidence in the message that he's bringing. And it doesn't end just with the trial. Because our story today talks about how Felix concludes the trial. And a few days later, comes back and wants to hear what Paul has to say again. And this time, when he comes back, he brings his wife, another beautiful little girl named Drusilla. Okay? And this is the second chance, the second example of how Paul can get out of this mess. How Paul can, can forget his calling and forget who he was and, and just, just escape with his life. His second example of his confidence in his identity. Paul has a private sit-down with the man who can get him out of this. He could explain to Felix what actually happened without being interrupted by the lawyer. He could talk to Drusilla, who was a Jew, who would understand all the ins and outs of the Jewish faith, and he could prove to her that he was innocent. But it's just amazing how Paul uses his time with them instead. Verse 24 says that, Felix and his wife, they listened to Paul as he spoke about his faith in Christ. Not his own innocence. Not how the Jews wrongly accused him and arrested him. But he preaches the good news to them. He brings the gospel to them. And it's not just the Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so gospel. Paul is talking about hard things. He talks about righteousness. He talks about self-control. He talks about judgment to come, which is exactly what Felix and his wife need to hear about. Again, Felix was not a good guy, and his wife wasn't so great either. Actually, the way that they came together was through some sort of magic and sorcery where they were able to like, convince Drusilla to, to divorce her husband and to marry Felix. If there are two people in the world who need to hear about righteousness, who need to hear about self-control, and who need to hear about the judgment that's to come, it's these two. And I love how fear of his authority and fear of his position doesn't stop Paul from sharing hard things to Felix. It doesn't keep him from speaking the truth to him. Because that, that, that's something that I struggle with, right? What will people think of me if I try to share with them the gospel of Jesus? The text says that Felix kept calling to Paul and saying, hey, come back, talk to me again. Because he wanted a bribe from him. He wanted some cash. He figured that Paul... If he really wanted to get out of this, he could just get some money together. 
Paul, after all, had tons of people. You know, he just brought a bunch of money to Jerusalem. He had benefactors, people who could probably hook him up with some cash to get him out of there. He could have walked away. And actually, a really important piece of this whole thing is that absolutely no one in any authority thinks that Paul has done anything wrong. The commander Lysias says it in his letter to Felix that he finds nothing deserving death, nothing deserving imprisonment. Felix is only keeping him there as a favor to the Jews. Even King Agrippa in our next chapter says that if Paul didn't insist on a trial for himself before Caesar, that he wouldn't be going to Rome, that he could walk. So what gives? What is it? What is happening in Paul? That he doesn't try to get out of this situation, that he doesn't do what most of us would do. Remember, how I said that Paul is able to move through the world without being affected by the world because he knows who he is in Christ and because of his standing in Christ, he can love people accordingly. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul, rather than looking towards his own self-preservation, his own promotion, he looks across the table at Felix and Drusilla and sees two broken people who are desperately in need of the grace of God. And he speaks into their life words that are hard, words that might hurt to hear as much as they are for Paul to say. And in doing so, Paul loves them. He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, From now on, from this moment in my life on, I'm not going to look at anybody else from a worldly point of view. That verse should change your life. That verse should speak into every single person that you interact with. That we don't see people from a worldly point of view anymore. Who is it in your life that seems too far gone? Who is it that you would think could never turn to Jesus, could never turn their life around? Who is it that you think that the salvation that Jesus won on the cross by giving up his life, by shedding his blood, by raising from the dead, who is it that could never receive that? Does a person come to mind? Does for me. And I'm convicted because if a person comes to mind when I ask those questions, then I'm looking at that person through a worldly point of view. The heavenly point of view is this, that we need to be seeing all humanity through the lens that Christ died for all. That the blood of Jesus can and will reach every person. That salvation can take heart in the root of everyone. Even though Felix is a tyrant who murders, manipulates through greed and corruption, Paul really believes that the best thing for his life would be if Felix could experience the grace of God and put his hope and put his trust in who Jesus is. That Paul has been brought to that exact moment, that exact spot in his life, not to play survival of the fittest, not to look out for his own interests. Maybe he's thinking about what he wrote to the church in Philippi when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Rather, in humility, bend your knee. Value other people above yourself. Don't look only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. He's thinking, Paul, rather, rather than try to escape this mess, rather than pay him off and just get out of it, why don't I speak into his life? Why don't I value Felix above myself? 
Why don't I look to his interests and not only to my interests? Why don't in my relationship with Felix, why don't I have the mindset that Christ Jesus himself would have? That to go low to raise someone else up is, is worth it. The power to move through the world like Paul did, to have influence on the world around you, to have, to have change on the culture that surrounds you starts with knowing who your father is, knowing your position. It reminds me of uh, listening to Dan Mike preach for the last six years. Because Dan always has some story of anarchy in his dad's church. Have you ever noticed that? Dan's dad is a pastor in Houghton Lake. Dan grew up in the church. And Dan could do whatever he wanted within those walls. Because he knew his dad, his dad was in charge. Do you know your father? Do you know his heart? Do you know his dreams for you? Do you know his plans for you? His love which goes beyond all things. Are we allowing the love of God to work into our lives, to give us a new heart, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, what he wants to do with his kingdom work? I encourage you to ask God to show you who he is and allow your world to change. Last, su last summer, uh, my wife and I got to go to Turkey on one of Rod's study trips and we got to go to a lot of these places that Paul was traveling. And one of the most um, epic places I've ever been in my life is the streets of Ephesus. And you're walking through these Rome, beautiful roaming Roman streets with this beautiful, just marble everywhere. And the thing that sticks out to me the most is um, Rod brought us to this place where all these house churches are. Like they've uncovered these, these really tight-knit houses built into the side of a hill. They just tear us right up. And they say this is where the church was thriving in Ephesus. The things that Paul's writing to the people in Ephesus, they land here. And we come out of the side doors of these houses, and we literally take 10 steps across the street. And you know what's there? A brothel. That right where the church is thriving is that darkness. And I can just imagine Paul speaking into the church, speaking into the people's lives, saying, you see the people that are walking down the street and turning left into that brothel. They don't know who they are. They don't know the love of the Father. They haven't experienced the grace and, and the loving kindness of God. And so he says to the church there, he says, Follow God's example. This is Ephesians 5. As dearly loved children. Follow his example as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us. Just as he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Walk in that same way. And at the same time. This isn't hard for Paul to say. At the same time. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. There must not be any kind of impurity among you. Or any kind of greed. Because these things are improper. Paul's able to speak into people's lives and he's able to say, hey, you can live in darkness. You can live in the dark areas of this city, of this world, and you can be an agent of light in them. You can actually go into your workplaces. You can actually go into your schools, onto your sports teams, into your coffee shops, and you can bring the influence of the kingdom of God with you. It starts by knowing who your father is. Knowing that his opinion is what makes you. His opinion is what matters. 
and looking across the tables where you're sitting, looking at your, at your coworkers and saying, you're worth the love of God. You're worth the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that, that this is a reality, Lord. That your love is, it's all-encompassing. That your love is, it's reaching out to people. That your love can overcome uh, sin and shame, regrets. That you are our glory and that you are the lifter of our chins, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this morning as we sit in that for a second, You'd show us again who you are, that we would experience your Father's heart, that if there's any, if there's any fear or, or pain that comes with that word Father, that you, you, a good Father, would wash it away. You'd give us courage and ability to bring your good news into a world, into Grand Rapids. Thank you.